But I, I, I don't think I need to say this, but I'll say it anyway, that life is hard. Um, and even just in some of the things I've recounted this morning and just some of the people that are sick and struggling, I think we acknowledge that life is hard. We get it. What's interesting, well, is it interesting, it's just a fact, is that life in the kingdom of God is hard too. Life as servants of God is hard. Sometimes doing, just doing what God has called us to do is hard. I, I recall the story of Jesus telling the disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. And so they, the disciples are just obeying Jesus. They are exactly in his will, doing exactly what he wants. And yet halfway across the lake, they uh, encounter wind and waves and a storm. And their boat goes nowhere fast. And it, life is hard. And they're obeying Jesus and life is hard. Sometimes we think that if we obey Jesus and do everything that God commands us, then everything will be simple, right? That life will just be easy for us. But it's just not the case. Living by the gospel, doing God's, living by God's commands, living in God's will doesn't guarantee a simple life. In fact, the very opposite often, living in his kingdom results in opposition. And we often find that living in his kingdom and living out his kingdom values puts us in direct conflict, in opposition with our culture and the world around us. Kingdoms collide. Now we're going to read Ezra 4 today. It's largely a chapter that points out that the kingdom of God and God's people in the kingdom face opposition. That's really the main point of this chapter. And, and, and the opposition that the people of God face there comes from next door neighbors, as well as from kings and authorities and rulers and powers. The opposition comes to them in subtle ways. It comes to them through half-truths and suspicion. But it comes. In preparing for the sermon this morning, I ended up preparing three different sermons. Um, three, all sorts of things. And, and, and some of the things to see in this passage this morning, uh, one thing we could see is that the kingdom of God is not connected to or dependent upon the kingdoms and rulers of this world. Uh, the first sermon I prepared in this dealt with exactly that. And if we look back on the last 20 or 30 years of politics in America, and, and if you look back in just these last couple of years in particular, you can see how the church in America has tried to tie itself so, so very closely to a political movement. In the mistaken belief that this will usher in some kind of a golden age and the kingdom of God will come. That if we just get the right president who has the right policies in place, then America will once again be the kingdom of God on earth. And you see that in Ezra chapter 4 where right at the beginning you've got Cyrus who is very pro the kingdom, very pro the temple. Go and build and it seems like the kingdom of God and, and the kingdom of Cyrus run on parallel tracks. They're going in the same direction. And it looks like if we can just hook up with Cyrus... The kingdom will come. But by the end of the chapter, you realize that that's not the case, that the two kingdoms are actually divergent, and they go in two different directions. And by the end of the chapter, you're seeing that the kingdom uh, of this world is saying, shut down the kingdom of God, bring it to an end, stop what you're doing. So if you think that connecting ourselves to some sort of political power will bring about the kingdom of God, you're delusional. Just got to say it. That's not going to be my sermon. Instead, I want us to see something slightly different. For us to recognize that we have an enemy, and that our enemy longs to see us unproductive in the kingdom of God. 
And for us this morning to recognize some of the tactics that he uses against God's people to hinder the advance of the kingdom. So we're going to read Ezra 4, not yet, but in a moment. But I need to tell you what's going on in Ezra chapter 4 so that you can understand what we're about to read. We finished last week with the exiles having come back home. And within the first couple of months, they'd built an altar. And by the, by the beginning of the second year, they had already laid foundations for the temple. So work is moving quickly. They're getting on with the job. Chapter 4 starts off with just a continuation of that story. It's like, right, right, we've got the foundations. Let's just start piling bricks on top of that. We'll get to Rufite soon. And pretty soon, we'll have a, a temple going. And it's great, but there's opposition to the work. And we discover, by the end of the chapter, we discover that the work on the temple stops for 16 years. So they lay the foundations, they lay a course or two of bricks, and then they stop. And they go home, and they build their own mansions, and they build their own houses, and they, they plant fields, and they do all sorts of other things. And the work on the temple stops for 16 years. But what happens in Ezra 4 is that really just is the first five or six verses. In verse 6, Ezra skips ahead a little bit. And Ezra essentially says, listen, once the opposition to the temple was finished and the work there started up again, don't think that opposition ended. And Ezra says for the next 55 years, opposition continued. So you need to remember that Ezra was not around when the temple was being built. In fact, Ezra probably wasn't even born when that temple was being built. Ezra arrives 80 years after the first exiles had come home, 80 years after that, that, that first altar had been put in place. And Ezra is able to look back and say, over my entire lifetime, there has been opposition to the kingdom and to the establishment of the kingdom. And then the very last verse of chapter 4 takes us all the way back to the temple again and says the work on the temple stopped. Now, when we read in this chapter, we're going to read about four different kings, because that's the time frame that we're looking at. Eighty years, four different kings in the, uh, the, the, the Persian and Babylonian Empire. So it starts with King Cyrus. Uh, and King Cyrus is the guy who said, you can all go home, you can build a temple, and take, all, take some of my money and build it, and just remind your God that I'm the one that let you do this. Because Cyrus wants to curry favor with God. The second thing that we come across is a guy called Darius. And Darius is the guy who had Daniel thrown into the lion's den. So you remember him. And then after Darius comes a guy called Xerxes. And Xerxes is the king who got married to Esther. But then Xerxes died. His brother murdered him. And his brother Artaxerxes is the last king we meet about. Artaxerxes takes the place of Xerxes. And I think you can already realize in the names that no wonder there's some issues here. It's like the parents had a first child and called him Xerxes. They had a second child and then went, what should we call this one? Let's call him second Xerxes. Talk about living under the shadow of your older brother. Artaxerxes, he's the guy who sent Nehemiah back to build the city. Okay, so we got it. We understand where we're going? Let me read then from Ezra chapter 4 this morning. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build. Because, like you, we seek your God. 
and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Asaradan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah, to make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them, to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rehem, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehem, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges and officials over the men from Tripolis, Persia, Erech, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. This is the copy of the letter they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of Trans-Euphrates. The king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls, repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we're under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in Trans-Euphrates. And so the king sent this reply. To Rehem, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made. And it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop the work, so that the city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehem and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem 
came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. There's a lot to kind of cover this morning. And I'm actually only going to end up dealing with the first five verses here in particular. But we find in those first five verses that we have an enemy. And that the intention of the enemy is always to hinder the gospel. Now, in the case of Ezra, the enemy were actual people. They were people of Samaria, people who would become the Samaritans. Our enemy is perhaps a little different. And for us to be, to be reminded this morning, just to be aware, that we have a, an enemy who, there is a personal aspect to this, an enemy who would love to see you become ineffective, unproductive, and unfruitful in the gospel. But our enemy, on a wider scale, would love to see the church become ineffective, unproductive, and unfruitful for the gospel and the kingdom. So for us to keep those two things in mind this morning, that we have an enemy who is out for you as an individual, and an enemy who will do his utmost to hinder the progress of the gospel, who would do his best to progress the hinder, of the, hinder the progress of the kingdom of God and the church. So you personally have an enemy, and no, it's not your psycho, stalker, ex-high school girlfriend on Facebook who is after you because you broke up with her the week before the matric dance. That's not your enemy. The church has an enemy. And no, the enemy that we have at the moment is not the government and coronavirus council who is not letting us meet together. That is not our enemy. The New Testament tells us this, that the devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he will use all sorts of things to undermine the progress of the gospel in our life and in our community. And so there are four tactics that we'll see this morning from this passage. Four tactics of the enemy in seeking to undermine the gospel in our lives. The first one is the area of compromise. This story starts with a group of people arriving at the building site with hammers, spades, pockets full of cash, and they arrive saying, we've come to help. We also worship your God. We also offer sacrifices to him. We've built an altar up there in Samaria, and we offer sacrifices there. We want to contribute our skills, our abilities, and even our money to build this great and grand temple. Now, you would think that the exiles would be delighted with that news. You'd think that the exiles would, would embrace this and say, yes, we'd love the help. We, I mean, which church doesn't want more money, right? We need the help. We need the cash. We'd love to build stuff. We'd love to put things in place. More money will see us expand the gospel and send the good news out. They want the help. It'd be wonderful, right? But instead, the exiles chase them away. And they use some very strong words. We'll do this alone. You have nothing to do with this. And you kind of wonder, why, why don't these guys be just a little bit more conciliatory? Because you see, it's this rejection that results in all sorts of unhappiness and all sorts of opposition in the next couple of weeks and months. And in fact, that opposition continues right down the, through generations to the day of Jesus. We read about Jesus and the Samaritans, the Jews and the Samaritans, where they continue to be enemies of one another. Jesus talking about the story of the Good Samaritan was meant to highlight how, how these two nations have become so divided. And much of it stems back to these days. 
And you wonder, why didn't uh, the exiles just reach out and say, sure, come along and help us? If only they'd been a little bit nicer, you know? Because to be honest, it's an attractive offer, isn't it? But the things we need to be aware of. These guys who had come to help had come down from Samaria. Now, Samaria had been the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel that had been uh, uh, knocked down by the, by, the, um, by the Assyrians 200 years earlier. And they talked about Ashurbanipal, another king up there, um, who had then repopulated that city of Samaria 150 to 200 years prior to, to, to these days of, of building the temple. And, and that city had been repopulated not by Jews, but by people from all over what was then the Assyrian Empire. And these people had arrived in Jerusalem. And what had happened, it's interesting, you can read the story in 2 Kings chapter 17. They had arrived back in Samaria, or had arrived in Samaria to repopulate this area. And they were being hunted by man-eating lions. And their immediate thought was, well, if we're being chased by man-eating lions, it must mean that we've done something to offend the God of this land. And so they think the best way to deal with this is to find a priest who can tell them what they can do to appease this angry God who has sent lions to eat them. And so they do. They locate an Israelite priest from somewhere. And this Israelite priest comes along and teaches them a little bit about Jehovah, about Yahweh, about the sacrifices and the sacrificial system. And these repopulated Samaritans go, this is great. We'll start offering sacrifices to God and hopefully that will get rid of the lions. Right? So it's always a good reason to worship God, right? As a means of getting rid of man-eating lions. Now, the problem is, and 2 Kings 17 tells us this, for at least 200 years and more, these Samaritans offered sacrifices to God, but they also offered sacrifices to their idols. You see, they'd arrived in Samaria with their false gods, and when they were told about the God of Israel, they just added him to all the other gods that they worshipped. And so now these guys come down from Samaria to Jerusalem uh, to say, Let's let us help you build your temple. We worship and sacrifice to your God. But Zerubbabel knows that they're, they're not just offering sacrifices to God. They're not offering sacrifices to God alone. They're continuing to worship their idols. And so they go, thanks for your offer, but you're not part of the kingdom of God. Oh, you may look the part, you're offering the sacrifices, but you don't worship God alone. Now, sometimes the church, and sometimes as Christians, we need to make that distinction too. Because sometimes people come along, and they look the part, and we think that getting them on board will advance the kingdom, but actually, their allegiance is not to God alone. And so aligning ourselves with some of their policies and some of their plans will hinder the gospel. You see, the kingdom of God will not be built by compromise. See, if these guys had come, and if they had helped to build the temple, there would have been some expectation that they would have had a say in how worship at the temple is conducted as well. Hey, we gave you money. Um, you can't now just ignore us. We have a voice. And of course, the people building the temple don't want that. They don't want idol worshippers to have a voice in the establishing of worship in the kingdom. You know what? We see this principle at work in the church around us today. Where in an effort to draw in Samaritans because we want their expertise, we want their money, we want to make sure that we don't offend. And so we trim down the gospel 
We downplay anything that might possibly be offensive. We ensure that the kingdom of God is a nice and comfortable place where no one gets challenged about their idols, about their idolatry. And you know what happens? The, the, the church fills up. And expansion work takes place. And, and we can add on extra wings and, and you know, extra stories and advance the audio-visual equipment so that we don't have the songs getting stuck on our video as we're doing it in the morning. And all of this, well, it happens. But what ends up happening as a result is the church becomes gospel-less and unfruitful. Because those who've arrived and offered their money and their expertise begin to make demands and expectations of what worship should look like. We see that at play when the church connects to politics. I read an article just a year ago from... Um, Paul Tripp, and I uh, reread re it this week where he says this, our, our greatest power is not political. And the minute that you believe that your greatest power is political, that your greatest power is political influence, you will compromise the gospel. It always happens. You see, our power is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to do what politics could never ever do. And that is to rescue and transform the heart of a person. We cannot legislate the kingdom of God. You can't put rulers in place and put laws in place in the country and assume that by doing that you will make the nation Christian. And in fact what happens is when the church lines itself up with political power, the opposite happens. It will compromise the gospel. It happened in Nazi Germany. Many churches in the 1930s slowly adapted to the prevailing culture at the time. And those few who resisted ended up in the camps. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of them, and he was executed in the, in the death camps just days before U.S. troops liberated the camps in 1945. But the church's love of power meant that they remained silent in the face of atrocity. I wonder if that was perhaps the case in our own country uh, in the second half of, of the last century, where for many churches, the idea of cuddling up to political power and gaining some measure of control meant that they would remain silent in the face of injustice. I think it's what we've seen in America, where the hope that getting a president into power who will put in place some of the policies that might just align with the church will bring in some kind of utopian golden age. Instead, to, many, to much ex extent, the, the opposite has happened. And now there will be a great turning away from anything that even remotely smells like conservative Christianity. And so we see the church in compromise, either when the church tries to cuddle up to, to politics and play with politi politics and gain power there, or simply if the of the church adopting popular culture and popular opinions and, and drawing that into the church, and, and the gospel ends up becoming as shallow as a toddler's paddling pool. But we see it in our own lives as well, where we're tempted to compromise in areas of our faith. And we find that even in the small compromises that we make, it hinders the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. And the more little compromises that we make in areas of, of morality and ethics or, or of our time and our habits and our hobbies, uh, we find that the gospel becomes increasingly hindered. And we become increasingly ineffective and unproductive and fruitless. Now, this is not about whether or not you wear makeup, unless you're a guy, which it is. 
This is not about whether or not you play solitaire on your Windows 7 PC because Christians don't play cards. That's the old way of understanding compromise, but it's shallow, it's surface level. You see what the temptation is here in Ezra chapter 4, right? The temptation to compromise here is not come and play a game of cards. The temptation here is let's mix God in with a little bit of the idols and think that that's okay. And that's the real temptation that we face. Because our idols continue to have a hold over us. Our idols of pleasure and ease and power and influence and comfort and approval. You know, back in the 1980s, Christian compromise meant thou shalt not listen to East Coast radio, although it was LM radio back in those days, or or 5FM, that's bad. But really saying those things kind of missed the point. The real areas of compromise in our faith lie at a deeper level of our, our psyche and our spirituality. It's giving in to our deeper heart idols that will lead us into compromise and end up nullifying the power of the gospel in us. And those issues of power and approval that lead the church into compromise with society, that will oh, we'll hang on to political power or will adapt to our culture for approval, those are the things that lead us into compromise. And it's subtle. These guys didn't come along with big banners saying, we're here to destroy your, your building. Compromise comes in this guise of, this will be good. This will be helpful. This might be beneficial. But it never is, because it undermines the work of God. So what happens next then? Once they've gone through the uh, um, compromise and, and, and have rejected that offer of compromise, and thanks to those strong words of we will not compromise, the enemies of God's people set out to, secondly, discourage them. Now, I'm not entirely sure what form this took, but if encouraging someone is to say, you can do this, keep going, then discouragement, of course, is the opposite. You can't do this. You might as well give up. I suspect that became the message when the people had rejected the compromise. The Samaritans looking around saying, gee whiz, is this all you've done? You've got nowhere. You'll never finish it. Might as well give up. Why did the exiles listen to this? I really don't know, but clearly they did. Perhaps it was just a case of them looking around and seeing the immensity of what needed to be done. And instead of considering that this is God's work, they looked and went, ah, this really is beyond us. There is too much. Look at all the rubble. Look at the ruins. Look at the failures. Look at our feeble hands. Look at what we clearly can't get done on our own. And of course, in, of the, in this, you see the true character of the Samaritans at work. It shows that their intention from the beginning was never to really help build. The intention of the enemy is always to disrupt and I wonder sometimes if you and I are in a similar place where, where our enemy gets, to, gets us to take a look at the mess that we're in. The enemy gets you to take stock of what hasn't been done and what still needs to be done in your life. He gets you to take a look at the ruins and the rubble, at the mess that you've made of your relationships and your friendships. If he gets you to take a look at yourself and go, make you go, man, I, I've got such a long way to go in this thing, Christian thing. I'm such a bad Christian. I've made such a mess of my faith. I always get it wrong. And the head hangs down and the hands hang down. We become discouraged because we're listening to the enemy and looking around at what needs to be done. Instead of hearing the voice of the king and recognizing that the ta task set before us is from him. 
And so we become discouraged in our faith. We become discouraged when we see the slow progress of the gospel in our own lives. We become discouraged when we find ourselves falling into the same old sinful habits again and again. We become discouraged when we find that the task set before us has just been made that much harder because policies and people at the top have changed and we're going, now what are we going to do? Now where will we go? We become discouraged because of the words of the people around us saying, oh, you'll never make it. You're just not up to the task. And I'm not saying these things shouldn't discourage us. I'm saying that the reality is that they will and they do. Of course, the word discourage itself is a bit of a funny word. To have courage is to be bold, to have the courage of a lion. To encourage someone is to place courage in them. To discourage someone is to remove courage from us. Courage says, I can take on anything. To discourage says, no, you can't. It's too much. And so courage and boldness to see the gospel at work in us is drained away. Because we, we need courage to change. We need courage to see the gospel change us. We need courage to embrace the gospel. And the reason we need that courage is because the gospel requires that we fight to the death with indwelling sin and with the flesh and with the world. That we face our enemy. We need courage. And our enemy loves to see our courage drain away. And just like in the story, your enemy longs to set, uh, sets out to discourage you. To drain away your gospel boldness and leave you ineffective and unproductive. Compromise, discouragement. The enemy adds a third thing to the list. And he adds to it fear. The people are afraid. To go on building. And I guess within that there are the great what if questions. What if something goes wrong? What if Cyrus changes his mind? What if Cyrus doesn't like what we're building? What if I get hurt? What if I drop a brick on my toe? What if I miss the harvest? What if? What if? What if? And fear stalks this exile community. And fear stops the work. You know, it may have been real fears of actual attack, but it may also have been chicken little fears of the sky might fall on my head. And fear hinders the work of the gospel in us. The fear of what others might think. The fear of what friends and family might say. The fear of what I might be losing out on, what I might miss. Instead of boldly holding on to the gospel and boldly holding out the gospel as our only hope, we bottle it up inside and we live in fear of what others th may think, of what others may say, of what others may do. And we become ineffective and unproductive and fruitless in the gospel. Compromise, discouragement, fear, and finally, the exiles are frustrated. The Samaritans appoint some counselors who go to work on King Cyrus with this intention to frustrate the work 
at hand. And you, you see through the rest of the letter that these counselors continue to work, them and their descendants continue to work on Cyrus and on Darius and on Xerxes and on Artaxerxes. They send letters. They, they're constantly drip-feeding fake news, misinformation on their version of Twitter. And you, you read about it, right? Oh, king, if you allow this to happen, this will be a kingdom that will never support you. You'll never get your taxes back. It'll, it'll hit you in your money, in your pocket where it really counts. And so the, the plans to build and to see growth and to see this going forward is frustrated. It's squashed. And the result of all of this is that the work on the temple grinds to a halt. And there are 16 years where nothing happens. And it takes the words of Haggai and Zechariah to reignite the flame and get the job done. Your enemy seeks to frustrate the work of the gospel in your life. With fake news, conspiracies, and lies, and deceit. Anything that will hinder and frustrate and block God's word in you. He will tell you lies about how you're not worth it or how you're not up to it or how God may not love you. He will use things to distract you from the gospel. He will get you chasing down all sorts of rabbit holes on YouTube, facing, chasing all sorts of conspiracy theories here, there and everywhere. It's quite devastating to read how many Christians who apparently love Jesus have gotten lost in the whole QAnon thing in America. It's bizarre. And how the gospel there is frustrated and hindered and broken in their lives because they've been led astray by deceit and by, by false news, by fake news. You know, we want to think that doing God's work is going to end with good news. We want to think that it's all going to end with happiness. We would have liked the story to go something like this. God sent them to re rebuild, and it was God's will to rebuild the temple, and so everything went swimmingly. And within just a couple of years, Cyrus arrives at the temple for the grand dedication. And <coughs> I've just swallowed a fly. <coughs> That's gross. And so they're hoping, <laughs> that's just terrible. Um, so they're hoping that, uh, our hope, the way we would have written the story, is that Cyrus arrives at the temple dedication and is so impressed with what happens that Cyrus becomes a Christian. And that the whole world is converted. That Persian policy has changed. That they reintroduce prayer at schools. That Persian Starbucks print Merry Christmas on their cardboard cups, right? Because apparently that's how we know the kingdom of God has come. Merry Christmas on a coffee cup. That's the fairy tale ending that so many want. But it doesn't happen that way, does it? Instead, the story that we read is that God's work and God's people face opposition. And the opposition is so effective that God's people abandon the project. Again, we want to live with this hope that God's people fight through and overcome discouragement and are not giving in to fear and they build the temple. That doesn't happen. They face the discouragement and the fears and the result is that the work stops. And even when they do finally, 16 years later, get back on track, the point of the chapter is, opposition continues for generation after generation. Because that's the nature of this world and the kingdom of God. Now there is good news, and the good news doesn't happen in this chapter, but the good news is that we know the biggest story of the scripture is this, that no matter the opposition, and no matter how severe it is, God's kingdom will not fail. No matter how intense it is, God remains on the throne. Jesus rules. 
And despite the fact that you face an enemy and that you may become discouraged and frustrated, that you might have become lost in compromise and fear, the enemy ultimately will not win. Your hands may hang weak right now, but, we read it earlier this morning, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's all great and good news. But you may feel right now a little discouraged, a little weary, a little weak. And you may notice that I didn't at any point this morning offer any solutions. This has not been a sermon of five steps to overcome discouragement or three steps to combating your fears. It's just been the reality that you will face opposition. And yes, the good news, no matter the discouragement, no matter the frustration and the lies that are told of you, God will see his kingdom come. But that's not how this chapter ends. It doesn't end with this fairy tale of everything fixed. It ends in defeat. It ends in this reality of despair. Not every story ends wonderfully from our perspective. And so this is our reality check today. right? This story ends with, and so the work was halted. And so the work stopped. This is our reality check today. You have an enemy. And there are times when it will look like he is winning. Today, today is not about a self-help program and how to avoid opposition. In fact, it's a warning. The opposition will come. In fact, for many, the opposition has come. You're already facing it. It's a warning this morning to keep your eyes open for the temptation to compromise, to recognize the discouragement when it comes. And perhaps it's why the New Testament tells us to encourage one another, because we know that it's our enemy's intent to do the opposite. This morning is a, a warning to recognize the fear that stalks you, and to recognize that we have an enemy who longs to frustrate. So yes, this isn't an, a happy, you will overcome kind of sermon. That hopefully will happen next week, where we'll th see things change. The, ex the exiles find help and they get back to work. But that's for them. The exiles had to wait 16 years for that to happen. I'm asking you to wait seven days. For now, this is our reality. That sometimes the work of the gospel appears to come to a grinding halt in our lives. The enemy is at work. But he will not ultimately succeed. So you know what? If, if this is you this morning, compromised, discouraged, fearful, frustrated, then know this. You're not alone. Those are the common attacks of the enemy that we all face. But he will not and cannot thwart the work of the gospel and the kingdom of God. God's kingdom will come and his gospel ultimately will prevail. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come this morning in this recognition that we have an enemy. And that there are times when we are tempted to compromise. Forgive us, O Lord, in those moments where, unlike these exiles, we are foolish. And we give in to the temptation to compromise. Lord, help us to recognize the enemy when he comes. To recognize the discouragement. The, 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 um, the things that he uses to instill fear. The plans that he puts in place to frustrate and distract. Lord, I pray for people this morning 
who are feeling discouraged, who have had things happen this week that has kind of drained some of the courage out and left us feeling frustrated. I pray, Lord, for those this morning who are living with some sense of fear, of a fear of what the future may hold, of the uncertainty of what's going to happen next, uh, next week, next month. Lord, I pray for your church this morning that we would withstand the attacks and advances of the enemy. Lord, we would pray this morning, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.